0: Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. The scripture reading today is from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, family. Well, my name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors on our team here. Hopefully you had a wonderful weekend. It's been gorgeous these past few days. And I'm looking forward to spending some time looking at a really monumental text in our Christian faith this morning. But first, to situate, situate us in the church calendar, today is the first Sunday of summertide. Now, that may sound new or different to you. Typically, the church calendar goes from Advent to Pentecost. We just went on that journey. And then between Pentecost and the start of the next year in Advent, uh, different traditions have a variety of different names for what they call this season. Uh, typically, we've called it Ordinary Time, uh, but this year we thought we would try something a little less ordinary. Uh, I voted for Extraordinary Time, but I didn't win. Um <laughs> There are a variety of church traditions that call it Summertide, and we thought this was a beautiful combination of the church calendar alongside the Bend calendar, right? You know, things change here in Bend when it is summer, so we are in the first Sunday of Summertide, and uh, as you may have guessed, we will be in Summertide until the fall, and that's not a Bible dad joke, that's, we're talking about the season of the fall, and no matter the name, yeah, you got it now, right, yeah, it, thank you, thank you, it, no matter what we're going to call it, it is our hope in this season to grow and to mature and to look more and more like Christ. Uh, This growth is visualized in the color green, so you can see that we've changed our icon and our drapes to match the changing of the season. For the rest of the summer, we are going to be exploring the book of Genesis. The lectionary takes us into Genesis and we'll be loosely following it as we touch on the various high points of this narrative. So we're going to do a couple things today. Uh, First is we're going to start with a bit of a primer on the book of Genesis and then we will dive into our text. One small note, our text actually today encompasses the entire first chapter and first three verses of chapter two, uh, but it felt cruel to have Marcia read 40 verses, uh, and we wouldn't have any time for a sermon, and you wouldn't want that. So uh, the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible, Genesis meaning beginning or origin in Greek. It derives its name from the Hebrew word that starts the story that we translate as in the beginning. Now, like most books of the Bible, Genesis is anonymous. It doesn't tell us who wrote it. If you grew up reading the King James Bible, uh, it called Genesis the first book of Moses called Genesis. Uh, but, you know, don't believe everything you read, kids. Uh, there isn't any evidence within the text to suggest that Moses actually wrote it, but this was kind of a commonly held belief for a while. Genesis itself is divided into two main chunks. There's chapters 1 through 11 and then chapters 12 through 50. This first chunk discusses the origins of the world, discusses uh, big picture ideas about humanity and how God relates to us. It shows how things went wrong and it sets the stage for how God will put those things right. In the second half of Genesis, uh, we see God starting to put these things right as the narrative moves away from these all-encompassing themes, and it focuses on the story of Abraham and one person and his descendants who will become the people of God. It shows us what the world is really like and who we are. But even more than that, Genesis is part of a gargantuan narrative that runs through the books of First and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. And within that big journey, we go from creation to the promise of Abraham and Israel's ancestors. We see the exodus, meeting God at Sinai, uh, God's people coming to Canaan. We have uh, the era of the judges. We know about Saul and David and Solomon and then the division and the decline that ends up with God's people being exiled to Babylon. This is the last event recorded in this narrative, and it's in this Babylonian exile that this story of Genesis was likely written down for the first time. And I want to camp out on that idea of story for a moment because uh, stories are powerful, right? We inherently know this. Whether it's in literature, TV, or film, we connect in with stories. Or when we meet a friend, we want to know their story Captivating stories, true stories, stories that explore questions that we want answers to. Uh, Just last week, I saw the power of story firsthand. Uh, Last Sunday night, I attended what I think was the bend record for the most baby boomers in one place, uh, the James Taylor concert. Uh, Anybody else there? Yeah, okay, yeah, right, okay, yep. I see a certain age there, right? So um, I was there, I was there. It's cool, I'm a fan, okay? And I love James Taylor, but there were definitely some uh, deep cut, you know, deep track songs that I did not know. But with each one of these songs, James Taylor, he would tell the story of why he wrote it, or or what it meant to him, or where the idea for this story came from. And knowing the story behind it made me fall in love with these songs that I might have overlooked or completely ignored before. He told this story about having a pet pig for six years, right, it's crazy, it's a great song. But story, when he invited us into that, it made us care and think differently about the songs he was singing. Uh, Robert McKee is a veteran of the film industry, but he has a, a seminal book on this idea of story, and he says this, he says, stories not only structure our world emotionally, but they serve as the vehicle that carries us on our search for reality, our best effort to make sense out of the anarchy of existence. The stories that we tell are a part of our universal human heritage. Our families uh, have stories that we tell, like Micah said, often the same ones over and over and over again. I think every married person has that moment when they realize what those stories are with their in-laws. Oh, that's the one I have to pretend not to know. Got it, all right, I will listen to that. (laughs) In Genesis, it sets the stage for the story that will unfurl throughout the narrative of the Bible. And if we think about it, uh, maybe being written down for the first time while the people of God had been taken from their home, it makes even more sense. Genesis is the culmination of the stories that they had been telling themselves for years and it became even more important when everything had been stripped away from them. This is their ancestral stories, our ancestral story. So when the people of God were confronted with another dominant framing story of the Babylonian people while they were in exile, they needed to be grounded in the story of God, in the story of God and his people. Maybe you remember learning about this in school, but there was something called the Enuma Elish, which was the Babylonian creation account. And they were confronted with this story. And what we see here in Genesis is the account of how God's people understood creation and its true creator. As they repeated this story and the story that developed over the next several pages or several hundred pages of scripture, they hoped that the successive generations of the people of God would better understand themselves. They would better understand the world around them, the human predicament and God's commitment to humanity. This is the story that we enter into the book of Genesis of a people reminding themselves both who they are and whose they are. And so as we begin our look at this start of Genesis, it's important to approach the text with the questions uh, that they were asking versus the ones that are often asked by us today. Uh, The original audience, when they were thinking about creation, they were asking the questions of who and why. Who created all this that we see and why did that creator do it? Today and throughout history, tons of folks have looked to this text and focused on different questions. They've focused on how and when. These are important questions, questions that should be explored and absolutely should be informed by our faith. But to approach this story as a scientific textbook would be to have an entirely different intention than the original authors and listeners. They didn't think about truth in the same way that we do. Their goal was not historical or scientific accuracy. But as Dumbledore says to Harry Potter in King's Cross Station, why would it make it any less true? Because what we see here in Genesis 1 is the true story of the creation of the cosmos. And for it to be true doesn't mean we need to prove it scientifically. It doesn't make it wrong, maybe this is how it happened, but instead the important questions are about who created this, the triune God, and why God did it out of love. We'll see that narrative unfold over the course of the summer from here in the first creation account to next week as Pete examines the second creation account we see, yes, there are two, we will explore why that is meaningful, and so on all the way until we complete Genesis. Genesis. So again, this is a big chunk of text that we're gonna look at today. We're not gonna be able to look at every single verse, but we'll do our best to touch on the high points and key themes. So I've always wanted to say this, open your Bible to page one. Uh, Verse one says this, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So first rule of creative writing, open with a gripping line. I would say that is pretty gripping. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And this verse summarizes what is going to happen in the following narrative. It is the headline for what is to come, starting in verse 2. It says, Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now Micah talked about the importance of poetry and art, and actually formless and empty, they actually rhyme in Hebrew. It's this poetic turn of phrase. It's a clue to the type of literature that, re, that we are reading. But We might understand these words better as wild and waste. It was unordered and uninhabited. It had no order, and therefore, with the ancient perspective, it had no purpose. And the darkness that was over the surface of the deep, the, the deep abyss was symbolic of the dark and chaotic ocean. But even in the midst of that darkness, even in the midst of the chaos, we see that God was present. God's spirit or God's breath was ready in the darkness to bring order so that life could flourish. So again, these first two verses set the stage for the order that God will bring through creation. Now, the first six days of creation follow a fairly specific structure. Each day begins with, and God said... And each day ends with, and there was evening, and there was morning, the blank day, first, second, whatever. What we see is that each day solves this problem that is established in verse 2. There was no order, and there was no inhabitants. So let's take a look at what happens on each day, because there's a beautiful structure to how God creates. On days one through three, God splits that unordered darkness into three ordered realms. God creates the habitats. These are what are known as the days of forming. Then on days four through six, God fills each one of those ordered realms with creatures in the days of filling. So God lays the foundation for the work as a whole, and then once that foundation is established, he builds on it and he fills it up with the appropriate creatures or beings So on day one, we see, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. So God creates light and darkness, and then this is mirrored in day four. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. So God creates the sun and the moon and the stars to fill the light and the dark. We see the same structure on day two. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so, and God called the vault sky. Now, this is like a weird one to read. Water from water, it sounds strange, but the ancient people of God believed that in that dark and formless chaos of the deep abyss, that everything was surrounded by water, so when God separated that big body of water, creating the sky above and the sea below. So when it rains, their, their perception was that some of that water was getting in. When it talks about uh, digging down into the earth, you would find the pillars of the earth because that was water underneath there, that this was where creation was encompassed in this. So then on day five, God fills the sky and the sea with creatures and God said, let the water team with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vaults of the sky. So one more time on day three, we'll see this mimicked again. Verse nine, and God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. So what is unique about day three is that there is a bonus act of creation. Beyond the creation of the land, God creates the plants and the trees, So day three, bonus act of creation, something to note. Day six, God fills the land with land animals. Verse 24 says, and God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals each according to its kind, and it was so. But mirroring day three, God provides another bonus act of creation. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God creates humanity in his own image and we see day six and end like this. God saw all that he had made and was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. That's the shortest I can do it right there in six days. So what are the things that stand out to you on those six days? Or maybe if we think even bigger picture, what is the story that we as Christians, or maybe more specifically as American evangelicals, what is the story that we tell ourselves about creation and our role in it? Does that story include the creation of humans as being the climax of the story? Does that story focus on humans are supposed to rule over creation, or in other parts, it might say subdue or have dominion over, that we can use the earth and for no, with no regard for consequences? Maybe the story that we tell ourselves about creation, uh, it might be influenced about what we think happens at the end of the story. That the beginning of creation, what happens in this original creation, how we think about it is highly influenced by what we think will happen to the creation and the end of the story. And so I think that we can find a better story than the narratives that have come to define us today. Is whether we've been overtly taught it or not, we have defined the pinnacle and high watermark of creation as humanity. While we know that this isn't true in our heads, we can act as if the Bible begins with God's choosing of Abraham or his election of the people of Israel. But it doesn't, it starts with creation. We tend to jump from Genesis 1.1 in the beginning and think the next line is God created humanity all the way in 1.27. Between these two ideas, there are 26 other verses talking about the rest of God's creation in which God describes each element as good. So the story we've told ourselves for a long time is one in which God created humanity on one day and everything else on the rest. If we look at that list we just went over, as humans, we don't even get our own day, right? We're with all the other land creatures like cows, donkeys, and even cats, okay? How not special do you feel? If we are to have a healthy understanding of creation, we have to realize we are a part of it and not above it. So why we use the phrase, the rest of creation here at Antioch, because we are a part of creation, you and me, each one of us. And our good friend Wendell Berry says, we are holy creatures living among other holy creatures in a world that is holy. So within this first creation account, we see it's not about humanity's independence from creation, but the story being told is about the interdependence of all of creation, which we are a part each component of creation is in a symbiotic relationship with every other part. Within those first six days of creation, nothing is made for itself alone. Everything contributes to the whole together. So that, that is true, but we also know that there is something unique about us within the context of creation because we have been created in God's image. And people all throughout history have tried to figure out what that means to be created in God's image. Some theories have been, oh, you have the, being created in God's image means you have the capacity for language, or it could be human consciousness or rational thought, could be the need for relationships. have said it's the ability to create, some it's to be, uh, have a spiritual nature or a moral responsibility. There are all sorts of hypotheses about what this means. But almost every single answer falls short when put to the test, particularly when you think about our brothers and sisters who are differently abled and still 100 percent created in God's image. Furthermore, it's important that however we understand being made in God's image, uh, the text tells us it is for men and women equally, as articulated in verse 27. Just as a side note, I I'm so proud to work with our amazing female pastors, our amazing female elders, and work at a church that understands the image of God includes both men and women working together. Otherwise, we're missing out on part of the image of God. So, this this tension, right? We are embedded within creation. Mutually bound up with the rest of creation, we're equally dependent on water and air and other resources, but we are also unique because we bear the Creator's image. This is a tension, one in which the church uh, has often overlooked because we love to focus on how unique we are and not necessarily our similarities. This has led to the story that we have divine permission to do whatever we see fit with the rest of God's created world in pursuit of human advancement and progress. I think that rather than taking the idea that we have been created in the image and likeness of God and, and trying to identify what special privileges are unique to us as humans, we might instead see it as a unique responsibility given to us. When we see being made in the image of God as a responsibility more than a privilege, it changes how we relate to the rest of creation. If we explore uh, what these two words in the Hebrew mean, image and likeness, uh, they actually aren't synonyms. They don't mean the same thing. The first word, demut, uh, translated as likeness, is a good translation. It tends to be used to describe a physical appearance in other places in Scripture. But the word that we translate here as image, the Hebrew word is selim, it's less about physical relation. Other translations might be mirror or reflection, but it is often translated in the Old Testament as idol. Which if there are a few things we know about the Old Testament narrative, idols are big no-nos, Right? We're supposed to steer clear of idols. It's, it's kind of like when Penny starts to do something she knows she isn't supposed to do. She's like taking a crayon to the wall. She says, no, ma'am, no, ma'am, and she's doing it. Like, she knows she's not supposed to do it, and she can articulate that, but not quite there yet, right? So we know this about idols. We, we're not supposed to do that, but what is... An idol. An idol is an image that is a reflected representation of a higher power. In ancient times, you might have seen this in statues of rulers that were placed around the kingdom so that the subjects would recognize who was in charge. These idols reflected and pointed towards the king or the ruler. So when these two Hebrew words are paired together we see that when we try and understand Imago Dei, this image of God, it's more nuanced than we think. As humans, we are unique in that we are privileged to share in God's likeness, but we are also bound to exercise that privilege that reflects the rule and reign of the Creator and the King. Our responsibility as image bearers is to point the rest of creation back to the Creator and represent the goodness of the Creator in all that we do. To be given that responsibility does not mean we have the license to abuse or exploit the rest of creation, but we are to live and interact with the rest of creation in such a way that others see the goodness and the love of the creator. Even the phrase that has been used for centuries to justify Christian abuse of the planet, to have dominion over, is a really shoddy understanding. It's not about having the power to do what you want so you can dominate and strip mine or clear cut. It's better understood like a gardener who tends to their plants, a gardener who nurtures their plants, cares for them. It's about understanding our dependence on God and out of that overflow exercising God's kingdom of love, not just for other humans, but for the rest of creation, which God himself has called good. And of course, we can't just overlook the true climax of creation, which is the seventh day. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So do you notice anything different here from the other days? It doesn't conclude with, and there was evening, and there was morning, the seventh day. That's how every other day ended. But this day is unique because the imagery here is that the seventh day has no end because the Sabbath is the pinnacle of creation. God has seen what he has created. He has called it good and only completes his work when he rests. On the seventh day, he blesses all of creation and marks it. As complete, we see the number of completion, seven on display, seven days of creation, seven announcements that creation is good. In the Sabbath, we see the prefiguration of the world to come and the reconciliation of all things. We have a foretaste of when everything is made right and when, completion, when creation will truly be complete. The story of creation is finished with God's delight in his own work if there is a dominion of anything, it is the dominion of the Sabbath for all creatures. Because if we get back to the story that we Christians have told ourselves about creation, one of the problems we have is how we think things will end. Right, that this world is all going up in flames, so it doesn't matter how I live today or treat the earth. There is a prominent evangelical pastor Uh, who infamously said this in a sermon, said, God intended us to use this planet to fill this planet for the benefit of men. It was never intended to be a permanent planet. It is a disposable planet. Christians ought to know that. Boo. (laughs) Bad theology. This theological story, one that separates heaven and earth, the physical, the spiritual, this is a faulty story. We talked about this a few weeks ago on Ascension Sunday, but God's plan as we see throughout this story as it develops in our Bibles is for a new heavens, a new earth, and for them to be joined together in renewal once and for all here in this place. We must abandon this idea that we don't have to care for the earth because it has no eternal significance. God has a big story of redemption and reconciliation in the works. So it's up to us to to live within this tension of being a part of creation, but also being created in God's image, to take seriously our role to care for the rest of creation the same way that God cares for us. To live as God's image and likeness is to treat our planet and everything that inhabits it with love and care and respect. Now, I believe this to be a biblical imperative that is vital to our spiritual formation on its own. On top of all that, caring for creation has heightened urgency because of the continued effects of climate change on our planet. Now, when we have a text in scripture that talks about hospitality, uh, we want to place that in our present context and we would often talk about uh, the homelessness crisis, specifically here in Bend, but around the world. When we have a text that talks about justice uh, we or injustice, we want to place that in our present context and talk about maybe the systemic oppression of our minority brothers and sisters in our country. When we have a text that talks about peace or violence, we might talk about the gun crisis in our country or another uh, school shooting. When we talk about creation, to place it in our specific context, we have to talk about climate change because it's never been more important for us to live out our responsibility of being made in God's image and caring for creation than at any other point in history. We have to look beyond partisan ideology. We have to look beyond campaigns of misinformation and embrace what we know to be true, that our planet is changing that these effects are felt all around the world with more severe storms and rising sea levels and droughts and food shortages, extreme loss of species and biodiversity, air pollution, expanding diseases. As American evangelicals, we have been ripe to ignore this reality. But we can change this story. Because My hope is that you would begin to see yourself and how you relate to the rest of creation in a new light. This would lead you to a life where you make wise ecological choices because the rest of creation has inherent value. But in addition to that, if you still need convincing, it is important to know that creation care equals people care. Creation care equals people care. While our main interaction with the effects of climate change is more wildfires and smoke here in Central Oregon, The world's poorest citizens feel the effects of climate change every single day and have contributed the least to its causes. Whether it's lack of access to clean drinking water, it's extreme temperatures, or an inability to have a consistent supply of food, our brothers and sisters around the world live with this reality. As we prepare to welcome a refugee family in the next few weeks, we know that climate change is one of the leading causes of global resettlement. One of our six practices here at Antioch is the practice of justice. Within this practice, we say that we are moved from apathy to compassion through the practice of remembering the poor. Again, creation care equals people care. And Catherine Hayhoe, maybe you've seen her, she had a very famous TED talk, but she is a world-renowned climate scientist, she's a professor, and she is a devout Christian. Together with her husband, who is a pastor, they wrote a book on understanding climate change as a Christian. In it, they say this, the only sensible response to climate change is to minister to the hurting, loving our global neighbors as ourselves, just as the good Samaritan did to the man lying in the road. We shouldn't simply look the other way, or even worse, perpetuate the idea that it is not really happening. So what does this mean for us? Much like our ancient forebears, we have been separated from our story of creation. Whether it's from competing stories or faulty stories we've told ourselves, we have lost this through the the thread of the true story of creation. But I think we can reclaim it. Step one, we can believe in the goodness of creation. Remember that God called all of creation good seven times, emphasizing its wholeness and completeness. Step two, combine that idea with a more nuanced understanding of what it means to be created in the image of God. One focused on the responsibility God has given to us of being loving caretakers rather than abusive tyrants with special privileges. In step three, see that the end of the story is intricately tied to the beginning, that creation finds redemption in the reconciliation of all things right here. We can ignore when people say this is a disposable planet. When those powers combine, we can live differently. Because as we reclaim that ancient story, we can change the story about Christians today. I mean, let's face it, we aren't well known for taking care of the planet. That's the nicest way to say it. In truth, you know, Christian abuse of the planet is an established cliche. We must recognize that in spite of all that, God has given us an important role to play. In God's blueprint for the flourishing of all of creation, he has chosen us as stewards to reflect his image. So what if we replaced the narrative about Christians today and instead we known as those who cared for the earth best? Because we have the best reason. We know the creator. What might that do for our Christian witness? If stories help us make sense of the anarchy of existence, might we point people towards a better story with our lives and how we relate to creation? Because I think if we live out that story, people will see the love of God on display. Ultimately, we see that the story that we are invited into in this opening passage of scripture is one that's focused on the goodness of the creator, the goodness of creation, and the good work we are invited into as we partner with God. A story that continues on throughout the book of Genesis, the rest of Scripture, and continues to us today. So, Antioch, as we reclaim our ancient story, may we be a people who bear witness to the loving kingdom of God by how we care for the rest of creation every single day. Amen.